Hello, and once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jack Snefflin. Thank you for joining us this week for match seven of our sports bracket. This week, we will be discussing 1992's A League of Their Own, as well as 2006's Stick It. Unfortunately, these are both very woman-centered narratives, and I'm sad that they got matched up so we can't have more going forward. Yeah, it is rather unfortunate, especially the slog last week's episode was. Boy, howdy. But at least both these films are pretty good. Oh yeah, they're both very good in very different ways. Yes. Why don't we go ahead and start off with A League of Their Own. It's 1943. The World War II draft has threatened to halt Major League Baseball. However, Candy CEO and Cubs owner Walter Harvey convinces a number of colleagues to bankroll a women's league. Scouts are sent around the country to recruit female talent. One scout comes across Dottie Henson, a star amateur player in rural Oregon. Dottie is at first uninterested, but her younger sister, Kit, convinces her to go, as the scout won't take Kit solo. The sisters travel to Chicago for tryouts, meeting other athletes along the way. They both make it into one of the 64 available slots and become players for the Rockford Peaches. The Peaches are managed by Jimmy Dugan, a former pro player who is now a cataclysmic alcoholic. The team struggles with their incompetent management and low turnout for the games, but they put in the work and become a major draw. However, the owners remain skeptical, and Mr. Harvey is pulling support after one season. Ira Lowenstein has seen the pride the players take in the league and convinces Harvey to let him take over. Meanwhile, the Peaches have made it to the World Series against the Racine Bells, but tensions from Dottie and Kit's sibling rivalry have come to a head. Dottie almost quits the team, but Lowenstein convinces her to accept a team trade instead. However, Dottie isn't the one who's traded. Kit is. Before the series begins, Dottie's husband returns from the war. She decides to head home with him, but is confronted by Jimmy before she leaves. Soon after, the series is tied 3-3 going into the final game, and Dottie returns to play one last time. The game is close and comes down to one last play, with Kit at the bat. She manages to hit a high fastball and bat in two runs, and rather than stop at third, tries to score. As she nears home plate, she manages to tackle Dottie, who drops the ball, and Kit scores the winning run. Years later, Dottie attends the ceremony to induct the Women of the League into the Baseball Hall of Fame, reconnecting with her former teammates. That is like a very bare-bones summary. It doesn't mention over half of the members on the team. It doesn't mention Tom Hanks's Jimmy Dugan character and his arc. It doesn't mention Rule 63 Bulk and Skull, played by Rosie O'Donnell and Madonna, an amazing comedy duo. Mm -hmm. Since we're getting into it, why don't we go ahead and talk about the cast? Wow, there's some major talent here. Yeah. So you have Tom Hanks, Jimmy Dugan, who is playing very off-type, but it's working. He's playing a sort of family-friendly version of Nathan from Misfits. We can't compare everyone to Nathan from Misfits. Also, this is much more like Frank Gallagher from Shameless. Ah, that's where it is. Yeah, we have Gina Davis as Dottie, as well as Lori Petty as Kit. Who is great here, and I'm really sad that Lori Petty doesn't get to be in more things. Lori Petty you probably know best from Tank Girl. She was also in the most recent couple seasons of Orange is the New Black. She does a truly phenomenal job of being someone who just sort of feels out of place everywhere. Mm -hmm. And she does a great job of translating this inferiority complex she has compared to her sister Dottie and the sibling rivalry that forms from that. As you mentioned, we also have Rosie O'Donnell and Madonna as members of the team. Rosie O'Donnell plays Doris Murphy, and we have Madonna playing all the way May Mordebito. 
we've watched another film that stars Madonna in it, and she's kind of playing the same exact character here. Fresh peach. Better eat it right away. It's starting to run a little. But I think she works a lot better here because she's not as one note. And she's not pivotal to the plot in the way that she was in Dick Tracy. Yeah. And I think that helps. She's a comic relief character and that's, I think, a really good place for her as an actress in the character. Yeah. Not that she doesn't have any talent, but I don't think she can quite carry a whole film. But she can do a really good job of being support. And pairing her up with Rosie O'Donnell for a good portion of the film just works out surprisingly well. I feel like there are a lot of scenes where the script just wrote, Rosie goes off here. They've got a sort of Abbott and Costello vibe going, and I'm loving it. Yeah. Other major talent, we have Bill Pullman, who is playing Dottie's husband, Bob. It kind of just feels like, oh, Bill Pullman's really popular right now. We'll go ahead and cast him. Yeah. And we only have to pay him for like two days of filming. Yeah. Yeah, he's only in what, like almost exactly two scenes? The scene where he comes back and then there's a few scenes at the final game where he's like in the stands and then meeting Jimmy afterwards. Yep. I'll admit, Bill Pullman, talented guy. He wasn't really a standout for me here. I mean, he didn't get get much to do, but even then, like, he didn't own the scenes he was in. But Mm -hmm. I'm okay with that. He's a plot device. And we need more narratives where men are plot devices for women. Mm Mm-hmm. I will say that as you might have noticed, this is a a very white narrative and there's precisely one black character in it who doesn't have any lines that I remember. There's this one scene where a baseball goes foul and this black woman like picks it up and throws it back in and the player catching it pulls her hand out of the glove and like shakes it off like, oh, that was actually a really powerful throw. Mm -hmm. And then like the black woman kind of just nods and then the scene's over. Yeah, I think the cinematography was telling us that scene had a lot of weight. I feel like it, they didn't execute on that as much as it needed to, to like, have an impact. As much as I like drawing the allusion to the eventual integration of baseball, it's ahistorical and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for it to just be here in the plot. I get what they were trying to do, but it just didn't work. Yeah, I think even that scene needed to not be there at all or needed to have its own like through line to get explored. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about some not great things as well as the cast, we also have John Lovitz, who is playing one of the scouts for the Women's League. I forgot about John Lovitz. Yeah, he's only in the film for maybe the first 15, 20 minutes or so. After the girls get to tryouts, he's finished. He literally leaves the film with, yeah, I'm just going home, grab a shower and a shave, give the wife a little pickle tickle, and I'm on my way. I'll see you. Oh, I forgot about that line, too. <laughs> I get what his character is there for. I get what he's doing, and he doesn't overstay his welcome. Like, there isn't, like, a John Lovett subplot in this movie or anything. I agree that he's not great, but I think he's sort of supposed to be not great. Yeah, and he kind of inoculates the audience for the realization of what this Women Leagues is kind of supposed to be about after tryouts. Where they learn about, oh, they'll be playing in skirts, and they have specific policies against alcohol and hanging out with men. This is the 1940s version of the lingerie bowl, Mm -hmm. and I really wish the film did a little bit more commentary on that. There's already a lot going on. I understand why it didn't. It's also 1992, so it's playing it a little safe. I think part of it is this is a family-friendly inspirational type movie, Mm -hmm. and... You can't really get into the grossness of the male gaze in a family-friendly Tom Hanks movie. Yeah, like, eight years later, we're gonna get Remember the Titans, and it's gonna get into racism and all that in a very, like, family-friendly Disney film. 
but talking about misogyny and the male gaze and whatnot, I don't even think that general audiences are necessarily prepared for that sort of thing now. They would definitely get blowback. Yes. Which, I mean... Sucks. Yeah, yeah. like, the, <laughs> I wish this movie had, like... Um, I was about to say have the balls. That's not <laughs> the correct thing at all. I wish this movie had the Gronk Nook to go through with that or to like really dig into that. Admittedly, I think some of the s- scenes where the girls are kind of taking ownership of the fact that they're meant to be more entertainers than athletes are some really fun scenes. There's a lot of great bits where they're doing fun, almost Harlem Globetrotter-esque stunts while playing baseball while still doing really well and being competent baseball players and it's really cool i like how they're essentially told you're supposed to be entertainers not athletes so like fine we'll be both we also have to get into where jimmy's at at the beginning of the film yes because there's a lot of misogyny that comes from him as well ball players i haven't got ball players i've got girls yeah it's really unfortunate the way he treats the female players it's also really sucky because there's this iconic line from the movie about because there's no crying in baseball there's no crying in baseball but the scene in which that line occurs is jimmy verbally abusing one of the players mm-hmm. until i saw this i genuinely thought it was from the sandlot and then i just like forgotten that line was in there no the sandlot has you play ball like a girl that's where it is Although it does have a really good arc where we're trying to convince Dottie to stay with the team and he's disgruntled that she's leaving. You know, I really thought you were a ball player. The arc there is very strong. Yeah. Jimmy eventually comes around. I wish the film highlighted his growth more, but it really doesn't. We do get a scene later on. I think it might be in the final game where he is frustrated with a play that the same player he called out earlier before and he he's very angry but he's controlling his anger and he's like still missing the cutoff man now that's something that i would like you to work on before next season as small of a step forward that is it's still powerful yeah because it's tom hanks and tom hanks is a very talented actor you can see how he's trying really hard and i think the character is very compelling even if i think the movie could have done a better job unpacking him yeah it does also lead to a great bit where because tom hanks is passed out for most of the games Dottie is basically their captain as well and there's a bit where he disagrees with some play that she's suggesting with the kind of baseball player gestures and so they're just both doing gestures at this poor girl who's up to bat and it looks like this fights from dr strange without any special effects <laughs> yeah the the scene of Dottie and jimmy vying for dominance via batting signals is great <laughs> so funny Honestly, a lot of the best scenes involve Jimmy playing off of Dottie. Dottie is kind of working as the manager and making sure that the team is well cared for and is playing correctly and everything like that until Jimmy finally is able to sober up and do it himself. Mm -hmm. Also, we're praising Tom Hanks, but I don't want to leave out Gina Davis. She's so good. Yeah, she is excellent in this film. Honestly, the entire acting cast is just top-notch. I mean, we we are talking about some of the biggest names in Hollywood in the early 90s, so it, it's not surprising, but it is also fun to watch. It helps that they all play off each other really well. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of scenes where the characters will all be packed into a bus or an apartment or a locker room, and them all bouncing off each other is really fun, and they all clearly have a good dynamic. Mm-hmm. Like, I get the feeling this was a fun shoot. Yeah. So a thing I think really doesn't work, there's this frame narrative where it's the present day and 
Dot is going to meet up with her teammates to be there for the opening of them being inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And then that's how the film begins and ends. I really don't think you need it. I give that this is a big thing. It's, there's a lot ha- happening with that historically. I feel like it is an extra 10 minutes of film that could have just been removed and the film would have been cleaner and crisper because just had one of those like where are they now things over the credits yeah i think a big reason why that it's the case there is because the director penny marshall was inspired to make this after viewing a documentary about the all-american girls professional baseball league and so i kind of feel like that was there specifically to honor the women of the league i get not wanting to cut it but yeah i think the film would have done better on its own And I really love the scene at the end. I think if you want to keep that one around, that's fine. But we really don't need the frame story at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I think part of it is that there's no tension for that end scene. It's just kind of a victor lap, as it were. Yeah. Which is fine, but I think there probably might have been some way to make that scene still have some sort of emotional payoff or something, as opposed to being just characters being happy. Easy way to do that is to just have it so that... Dottie and Kit don't make up after the World Series and that like that's the first time they've seen each other in like 40-50 years. Mm-hmm. But also I don't know what the historicity is of that so I don't know if that would cause problems. I don't know that either although I'm not sure if any of these players are historically accurate. I think that I understand why the scene matters in a meta context but in the like cold hard eye of a filmmaker yeah. That said, I do appreciate seeing that a lot of these characters, you know, got to be happy and have full, rich lives and all that jazz. All of these characters are really likable and lovable. And everyone has a different moment where I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. like there's a girl who's after the first round of tryouts, they have postings of every girl who made it in. And one of the girls is sort of standing there looking scared and nervous and they realize that she can't read. Oh, the emotional impact of that. I mean, they, they hit that thing that always sets you off is like adults learning to read. Yeah. They do something great with it, too. So there's one point where they're on the bus traveling to or from a game, and Madonna's character, May, is in the back of the bus with uh, Julie teaching her how to read. You know, they have this, like, paperback book. And you realize that it's a uh, it's a smutty romance novel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's great. Especially when you have Julie finally piece together the word breasts and then realize it herself. <laughs> While Madonna's character is punking this character a little bit, it's in a very, like, sweet way that is the kind of thing she seems like she would do with anybody. And I think it's a good way to make her feel like just one of the team members. Mm -hmm. We've talked about a lot of the characters individually, but I think a lot of their relationships are really good. We talked about how Rosie O'Donnell and Madonna are, but Kit and Dottie have a really intense dynamic. And it's that thing where... It's not Dottie's fault that she's beautiful and talented and is pretty emotionally stable and her sister is not, but it still sucks to watch her sister not being as good at things. Yeah, but her sister is also very much a hothead and is unwilling to be told that her flaws are her own and not just because, oh, everyone gives Dottie a break and she doesn't get that. Right, but the film lets both of these characters be fully-fledged characters. No one's the bad guy. While Kit still is in the wrong in some of these things, it's not all Dottie's fault or anything. It's Kit's not necessarily like a bad person for having this like whole tangled mess of complexes and projecting that. A lot of their problems comes from the differences that uh, in the way that society treats them, not necessarily anything that Dottie or Kit are doing themselves. Mm-hmm. 
One thing that I find really interesting about this film is, so at one point Dottie specifically calls Jimmy out on his drinking and specifically calls him a lush. Who's the goddamn manager? I am! Act like it, you big lush! As far as I'm aware is almost always used for women who are alcoholics. It's a very gendered insult and I just find it incredibly interesting that that was the choice that the movie made to throw that around. I'm not saying it's good or bad. With the way that this film is interacting with gender roles and things like that, it just felt kind of an interesting extension of that. Yeah, I think you could probably spend a lot of time unpacking Dottie's masculinity and femininity and how she doesn't fit easily into either category. Mm -hmm. She has tomboyish traits, but she really kind of just wants a very traditional white picket fence, two kids and a dog kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But her resoluteness about it has a certain masculine quality and that is very like resolute we kind of associate firmness and resoluteness with masculinity yeah. yeah there's also the fact that quite a bit of the film it feels like she is very firm and resolute because that's what society expects of her and not necessarily that's because that's what she wants mm-hmm. and i don't know the film never gives you a firm answer on that front right which i think again makes her a more complicated character and i appreciate that yeah so she shows up at the final game after she's been out of the plot, and I wish we had a scene of her making that decision instead of just kind of a fun reveal. Mm-hmm. I think that that is a pivotal choice for her as a character, and it happens off screen, and that's a problem. Yeah. Especially because she's kind of like the frame character. Yeah. She's the frame character, but in a lot of ways, this is a kid's story, but it's also her story. It is an ensemble narrative, but it doesn't quite handle the ensemble or the focal character quite right yeah if this were a novel it it would definitely be distinctly written in a third person limited sort of way as opposed to a third person omniscient sort of way because we don't have a lot of internality for many of these characters i mean if i was writing this as a novel it would alternate chapters between focusing on Dottie and kit as characters and then like every other character in the peaches has like their own chapter to themselves where it talks about their history and then a significant thing they do in the plot and that rebounds to Dottie and Kit again, and then another character. Oh, so the Orange is the New Black formula. Pretty much, exactly that, yeah. Speaking of Orange is the New Black, I was promised that this was the lesbian baseball movie, and I feel like it was, you know, a bit, but maybe not as much as it could have been. This does not have the, the same, like, powerful queer energy that, say, Bennett like Beckham does. No, I'm it sad not. about that. But I guess a movie about sisterhood is also <laughs> fine. <laughs> as I said on Twitter, female friendships are punk rock. Speaking of punk rock... <laughs> Let's go ahead and get into our other film this week, Stick It. So, Stick It is from 2006, and boy, howdy is it. <laughs> After being arrested for being too cool for school, by which I mean BMXing and breaking something, uh, a judge sentences Haley to go back to her gymnastics academy. She cut her promising career in gymnastics short by walking out of the world championships, letting a lot of people down and leaving a lot of them very angry, and has a huge chip on her shoulder. Her coach, Vickerman, uh, helps her uh, work through some of them, but she still pushes back, especially against her feeling that gymnastics success is more about conformity than expression. She begins to bond with her, with her fellow classmates, and through her influence, they learn to become more expressive and rebellious. When Haley finds out her coach is being paid quadruple to let her back in, and as far as she sees it, being paid quadruple to care about her, and when her manipulative mother shows up at a competition, Haley breaks down and reveals that she walked out last time because she found out her mother was having an affair with her former coach, and she flees the tournament. Vickerman uses all that money to settle Haley's debts and convinces her to return to the academy for nationals. 
At Nationals, Haley and her teammates make it to finals, but an exposed bra strap costs Mina a perfect score despite otherwise crushing her routine. Enraged, Haley shows off her own bra strap and scratches, getting a zero. One by one, the other gymnasts follow suit, forcing the judges to give Mina the gold. This sparks a movement, and the competitors decide on their own who they think should win, and all the others voluntarily scratch, including Haley's longtime rivals. For a moment, I swear they were infinite, and Haley is given some college scholarships. Mm. These movies could not be more different. <laughs> yeah, so A League of Their Own is a very, very, very conventional, very safe movie, Whereas Sticka is very experimental in a lot of ways. Yeah, very experimental and is unafraid of taking risks. That does mean that it fumbles here and there, but overall is a lot more dynamic. Mm-hmm. We're probably going to get into it more down the line when we get more towards the ending, but Sticka is a very punk movie in that it's much more about expression and making a point than it is about necessarily technical competence. Yes. And I'm kind of okay with that. Mm-hmm. While I think it could have been a better movie in many ways, I think the ways in which it is flawed are interesting and make me intrigued. Yeah, and there's also the fact that when it really counts, this film succeeds. It sticks the landing. The climax is the crowning achievement of this film. It is so wonderfully shot, so wonderfully written. All of the character interactions feel very real. Mm-hmm. That is not the case towards the beginning of this film, and I think probably the biggest issue with the film is the dialogue. The dialogue never quite gets to the point where it feels like a sort of intentional thing, like the way that Shakespeare has you kind of immersed in this unusual form of communication. Yeah, there's a lot of teenage slang that's getting thrown around that just feels very artificial. You know how I feel about the bus? Consider it done. Well done. Shout out to a crisp. And even Haley's aesthetic also feels very artificial. The film starts off with hip-hop R&B-esque song and a lot of the baggy hoodies and pants that Haley's wearing at the beginning of the film are there But throughout the film, whenever she's training, she's in, like, t-shirts for punk and metal bands like Black Flag and Motorhead. It doesn't feel terribly consistent. It just feels like, oh, yeah, these are what all the edgy kids are into, so this is how we're going to dress this character. It's frustrating because Haley feels probably, like, the most well-written character, and we get a lot of her internal narration, which is all really solid. Mm -hmm. And so the tension between... This aesthetic that feels very artificial, but all of her dialogue and internal monologue that feel very genuine is weird. See, I'm actually kind of okay with it. I'm not sure if this was an intentional thing or if they kind of stumbled into this and it just kind of worked out for them. But in the beginning, a lot of what Haley is doing is very much like teenage rebellion stuff after all the stuff that went down before. And it feels like she's just grasping at whatever she can to rebel. So BMXing and... The different punk aesthetics that don't all gel, and it's all very performative rebellion. It's all very in ways that don't actually affect the system or counter in any meaningful way. But then at the end, when she unionizes her fellow gymnasts, she actually seems to have taken what she was trying to be at the start and turned into what the actual form of that is, which is creating a union against the unfair system. Mm. It kind of works for me. I don't know if they planned that or if it's just stumbling to it. But. I'm completely unwilling to give them credit for that, especially if you look at all of the dialogue from all of the 
teenagers in this film. Okay, that's fair. Like, sure, they might have stumbled into that and it works for some people. I will readily admit that those meshings of aesthetic do lead to an excellent soundtrack. It feels like the soundtrack to a unreleased Tony Hawk Pro Skater game. Also, she has a few imagined spots through the whole film, and they all feel and are shot exactly like an Avril Lavigne music video from around this time period, which is exactly the kind of aesthetic that I think she would want to have. Mm -hmm. It works out really well. Yeah. It feels very vivid, even if it is messy. Yeah, there's even this one internal monologue scene that is set to Green Day's Brain Stew. That scene is well shot, and the use of the song is incredibly appropriate and i really appreciate it because it's, it's one of my favorite green day songs i have been holding it in but a lot of the bad dialogue in this movie comes from joanne Haley's kind of primary rival she's the the cutthroat bitch archetype character I, her, she's the cordelia she's the cordelia i love her she's introduced with this big title card giving her her name and her stats and zodiac sign bitch and i love that so much that's so good and she's incredibly ditzy, leading to wonderful things like, If you get on this trip, you will have a cardio vasectomy. And there's a, a great one where she talks about how she's not a Dalmatian. And Haley counters it by saying, Dalmatians are born with spots, they don't earn them, which is exactly my point. Which is so clever and fun, and I like it a lot. But also because Haley knows this world, she can kind of play at that same game and there's a recurring gag where she will talk at one of the other girls mina with her hands through her ear like a phone and mina just picks up the phone and mina right mina put down the phone can you tell joanne that i'm going to take over and do a real dismount joanne haley's on the phone she's going to do a real dismount i heard her thank you it's funny and wacky and i like how catty these characters are in a way that feels not genuine it feels hyper real mm-hmm Joanne is definitely the archetype of character that I love. I don't understand why, it's just who I am as a person. But I like that she has a sort of defrosting thing and we eventually see why she's like that and how horrible her mother is. Because, wow, there are a lot of horrible parents in this movie. And I like that she gets to branch out and go to prom with some cute guy who's probably going to wind up dating his best friend, but we're not going to talk about that. (laughs) Speaking of terrible parents, let's talk about one of the few decent parental figures in this film, Jeff Bridges, (laughs) who has his normal Jeff Bridges arc of starting off as slime and then slowly opening up and getting better. Yeah. I don't want to cast aspersions on the actors in this movie, but I think Jeff Bridges is sort of a weight class above all of them. Oh, distinctly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Quick sidebar, a lot of these actresses seem like fusions of other actresses. Yeah. Our leading lady, Missy Peregrim, is like the perfect in-between of Jessica Biel and Kristen Stewart. Yeah, and Joanne is sort of this weird fusion of Sarah Michelle Gellar and Naya Rivera. Uh, She's played by Vanessa Lengis. I mean, the actresses are all generally fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they just don't have the talent and skill that Jeff Bridges does, and part of that is just because Jeff Bridges has been doing this for 30, 40 years. That's true, that's true. Whereas these are mostly almost teenagers. His arc is good, and I appreciate that he's a fair coach who's not particularly cruel, and when he is, it's to make a point about him as a character. Yeah, although there is one point where he uses communal punishment. Uh, oh, yeah. Which, as we all know, is against the Geneva Conventions. It is, although in this movie it's uh, described being a- This is totally violating the penal code. <laughs> oh, Joanne. Oh, Joanne. Jeffers is also at one point uh, describes- Haley as Rebel Without Applause, which is very good. 
Yeah, it is a very good line. Mm-hmm. Although there's this one weird thing where he keeps using car metaphors uh, to <laughs> <laughs> to teach Haley lessons about gymnastics and like control and balance and all of that. And I'm just like, do you use car metaphors with all of your athletes or just Haley? <laughs> It really felt like that scene where a dad is trying to relate to his daughter and doesn't really know how, so he's just resorting to the only thing he understands, cars. Definitely reminded me of that scene in Colliding with a Chance of Meatballs where they have to use the translator on Finn's dad so he can finally just tell his son he loves him. Just know that fishing metaphor means I love my son. Okay, quick sidebar. So this movie goes a mile a minute for the first 10-15 minutes to get the plot going because they wanted to get Haley into this academy and they weren't super stressed about making sure that we were locked in until we got there and so I wasn't fully sure what the plot was at first and I really thought that it boiled down to you have to win at the gymnastics tournament or you're going to jail (laughs) (laughs) which I'm kind of sad it wasn't that like this movie feels like a Disney Channel original movie that somehow got too much budget and so they had to have a viable plot and not just win a gymnastics or it's the slammer which (laughs) that's a good plot Mm mm-hmm they, they definitely punched up the script a, a bit. Also, a lot of that extra budget went into some really interesting cinematography. Okay, yeah. So early on in the film, we've got Haley, who is like laying on the mats at the gym as her colleagues come in. And we are from the perspective of Haley laying on the floor, but with her head up looking towards her feet. And she's just, like, slamming her shoes together and, like, pretending to squish her, the other uh, gymnasts. And it is so good at letting us know what Haley's internal state is and how she feels about her situation and the people who are surrounding her. It's just a very interesting shot. And the movie only gets more experimental from there. There are two gyms in this movie. There's the old one that Haley spends some of her time training in during Act 1 because she wants to be alone. That's why they call me the Lone Wolf. And that's a lot of wood, a lot of exposed brick. It looks like any given pop-up brewery in Indiana. Or like the gym from Rocky. Yeah. Then the newer Academy one is bright white with red mats, like something out of Mirror's Edge. It's a stark contrast, and when you get into the more experimental cinematography, it creates this almost Rothko-ish effect. Mm Mm-hmm. There's also this one gorgeous scene where to determine who is going to a competition, they only have four slots available. They have a internal competition at the gym to earn the spots. Rather than just traditionally and do a normal montage of all these girls competing at their events, they have it so that it's all shot from above and we see these like time lapses of all of the girls competing and where their positions at are in comparison to each other and it's so gorgeous and so interesting some of it when they're doing floor-based leggy things that i don't really know the floor routine gets into this really cool thing where it starts mirroring some of the images like a kaleidoscope and i can't believe referencing this twice in an episode like something from dr strange but it's part of the storytelling too because the end scene is not like the end scene is very naturally shot so this is the like height of conformity where the characters are being so conforming that they are approaching geometry, which is so cool. And I love the like connection between thematic and visual. It's so, ah, I wish I could make something that good. Mm-hmm. We've been heaping a lot of praise on this film. One thing I do want to get into is this film definitely has an issue with male gaze. Yes. 
part of that can be chalked up to the male gaze inherent to female gymnastics, the bra strap strolling and whatnot. And the, the female competitors have to be very prim, very proper, and everything like that. And that, that's one form of it. But there's also other points where you can't really chalk it up to that. At one point, Haley is icing down her legs after a training session, and they show her coming out of the ice bath with a bare midriff and like very short shorts and lingering on her stomach and legs. And it's just gross. Mm-hmm. Especially since these are ostensibly teenagers. Yeah, at least narratively. Yeah. I want to say that it's part of this whole like visual thematic storytelling thing because I noticed it more during some of the parts where Haley's trying to conform but it doesn't quite hold up and it's still kind of gross even if it was. So in gymnastics to make sure that their leotards don't ride up they use this kind of glue spray and they show a scene of the girls applying it directly to their butts. Don't don't need it. No. Even if it was something where the filmmakers wanted us to know how that worked for whatever reason they felt it was important. There's a scene where Haley's talking to two of her friends from BMX-ing where she's explaining what butt glue is and they're like, <laughs> No. Oh, it's just this sticky stuff you spray in your butt so Leotard doesn't ride up. And that's why I don't want to give this film too much credit for mm-hmm. the way it interacts with male gaze because there's literally a line in there from the two guys as they're watching all of these very athletically proportioned women do acrobatic routines in skin-tight leotards. Like, how do we not know about this sport? Yeah. And yes, if you're wondering, the cinematographer is a man. <laughs> or at least as, as far as I can tell. I, I didn't do a deep dive. I do want to keep some confused praise on how this movie interacts with the boys. Yeah, it's... Real weird. <laughs> so Haley has these two guys from BMXing who are somewhere between Bulk and Skull and Beavis and Butthead. Yeah. They're kind of around for some of the plots. Like at one point they take some of Haley's friends out to the mall to just have fun and do, you know, the most family friendly thing you can do, like raiding the candy store. At the mall. At the mall and trying on dresses and uh, doing gymnastics routines in prom dresses. That was fun. Yeah. But then they get on dresses too and like get their makeup on and are really chill about it. And one of the boys agrees to take Joanne to prom, and that all happens while they're both in prom dresses. He makes a joke about how she's going to be wearing a suit, and she (laughs) isn't dignity. He says, no, 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 kidding. We'll both wear dresses. I'm not sure that didn't happen. There's no proof that didn't happen. Yeah. We somehow don't actually get the prom scene, which... What's a teen movie doing without a prom scene? The end of the film is very abrupt after the competition. Uh, I wish it would have ended with the prom scene and whatnot, but I get why it didn't do that because Haley doesn't have a love interest. But we could have had Joanne and What's-His-Face and then presumably Mina and Weiwei just going out, like, you know, dancing together. Haley could have gone stag. That seems appropriate. And by gone stag, I mean dressed with, like, antlers, just (laughs) staring at everybody. Those guys also have this weird, like, toxic masculinity scene that ends with one of the boys kind of outing the other one, but I'm not sure if it, if he wasn't out already. I'm not sure if it's outing or more so just using it as an excuse to get out of being in trouble with Joanne. I really couldn't tell. Listen, listen. When I eventually just launch my podcast, it's just all about like, forgotten gays of cinema. <laughs> I will do a whole, like, three-part series on just what is happening with this movie. <laughs> There's a lot. 
they're really interesting and they're not nearly as toxic as you would expect them to be for this kind of movie for this kind of audience yeah they're also surprisingly supportive of everything that Haley's doing with the gymnastic stuff yeah i want to know what happened with them but speaking of a lot of things happening I made the joke that I thought that the plot was that Haley was going to go to jail if she didn't win it at gymnastics. And while it's not literally that, it is kind of figuratively that. Because if you get a lot of different ways in which she is very figuratively trapped, like her, she got all these horrible parental figures and all these different like societal bounds and all these different ways in which she's being constrained by the things she's trying to succeed at. I really feel for her. Like when we find out why she had her breakdown and ran away from worlds, I'm like, oh yeah, I get it. I would do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so when she eventually unionizes the gymnasts and they do the whole, like, we're making our own competition thing, I was like, yeah, hell yeah. Some of those routines are so good. Weiwei's breakdancing routine yes. on the balance beam is amazing. Mm-hmm. It felt more like this is a woman who really loves the sport that she's in and really loves this music and is combining these two it to express herself. Yeah. And that's the same thing that happens with Haley's floor routine towards the end of the film mm-hmm. and like you said the the music is all over the place but like in the end scene the music is great mm-hmm. one last burn because this movie has some truly wonderful dialogue joanne's mother is threatening to pull joanne out and train her herself for nationals and Haley says i thought you wanted her to win the mom just turns around and says and what would you know about winning it's really scathing and i was really impressed with like the double barrel there mm-hmm. speaking of double barrel let's get into extra innings we've got training montage and training gimmick there's not really a training montage for A League of Their Own. We do get a montage of them getting popular and whatnot, and a little bit of goings on at tryouts, but that's about as close as we get. We do have the finishing school montage. They are being trained in the art of being oh, womanly. God, we do. There is technically a training montage, but for something that is not the sport. Yeah. And that scene has some not great. Mm, this one's too ugly for us kind of stuff. Yeah, we really didn't get into Marla, unfortunately. There's a lot with Marla, and I'm not sure how to feel about it all. So, yeah. For those who haven't seen it, Marla is a ugly girl who's really good at baseball. And there's a lot happening with her as a character. And there's really a training gimmick either. If we're thinking of trying to get more people to come to their games, there's some good gimmicks there. Like Dottie mm. is doing the splits or when catching foul balls or like behind her back. There's also not really a training gimmick for Stick It either. Not really. There's a whole, like, being a lone wolf and risking injury, I guess. But it's not quite a gimmick, per se. That's kind of a bone I have to pick with the film. They build up this whole don't injure yourself thing, but they never do anything with it. It's a Chekhov's gun that never gets fired. Yeah. I mean, not that I want to see anybody get hurt, but... Yeah, but they focus on it so much and it doesn't happen. It, It feels like wasted time. Yeah. So... Does that have a training montage? Stick it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. A bunch of training montages. Usually her internal monologue is over it. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. And honestly, I really love those scenes. Partly for the internal dialogue and how that is interacting with some of the music that they use. But also, just Haley's training is really solid. I like how it's shot. I think training montage I'm going to give to Stick It Mm -hmm. and... I love the gimmicks that they are using to get people into the stadium in a league of their own. So I'm going to give training gimmick to them. Sure. Gosh dang it. We're tied again. We are. However, I think just by the barest bit, a league of their own is going to push ahead for me. Really what it comes down to this time is consistency. As much as I love the punk rock nature of stick it, the 
film flails around a bit at the beginning and it takes a while to grab you, unfortunately, whereas A League of Their Own doesn't really have that problem. It's really solid all the way through. Intellectually, conceptually, with a cold, hard, rational eye of logic, I know that A League of Their Own is a better movie, but my heart says stick it. Cause, like, I felt the ending way more than I felt anything in A League of Their Own. I completely understand, <sighs> and I feel a lot of the same way. I am being cold and hard and rational here. Mm-hmm. If you want to vote the other way, it will not be the first time that we've had a split vote. It will not. And luckily, we have a way to decide this real fast. Hey, Mike! <laughs> I'm going to peruse Jackson's notes. <laughs> <laughs> that will not help you. Yeah, because I can't read them. <laughs> Having not listened to any of the episode <laughs> so far, I think Stick It. All right. It looks like Stick It is moving forward. That That's a huge upset. Yeah. No further questions, Your Honor. <laughs> also, thank you. So, somewhat unexpectedly, Stick It is moving ahead. That is... Really unfortunate, because there was a few more things that I was holding on to for A League of Their Own to talk about uh, next time, but it appears that there won't be, so I'm just going to get it out of here. We talked a little bit about Marla and the weirdness about how the tr- film treats her. It's not great, uh, but she does like get a happy ending, and she has a very happy marriage for 40 years. Oh, yeah. Also, props to A League of Their Own for being openly pro-Nazi killing. Yes, that is good. Those are both important things. Yeah, a little bit of punk rock cred. <laughs> yeah. That was an interesting episode. (laughs) Next week, we're going to be finishing off round one. We've got track movie Chariots of Fire going up against surfing movie Blue Crush, neither of which I have ever seen. So that'll be interesting. Meanwhile, I watched Chariots of Fire as the we're watching a sports film to learn about sports movies in my film genres class. Yeah, I've also heard it's a little Oscar baity. Oh, boy, howdy. (laughs) It makes a league of their own look like a sort of experimental film by Greg Araki. <laughs> okay. If you want to be sure to catch that episode as soon as it goes live, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Podbean, and Spotify. But until then, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.